With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Before we begin today, I want to give you a brief overview of what criminal behavioral analysis or profiling actually is. For you longtime listeners, this will just be a quick refresher. And for you new folks, it's important that you understand what you're about to hear. Profiling is an investigative tool where experienced and well trained experts in crime scene reconstruction and forensic psychology examine a crime scene and study the victim's victimology. A profiler does not want to know anything about any suspects, or even forensics for that matter. They are simply looking at the behaviors that the offender or offenders demonstrated during the crime. They then use those behaviors to determine what type of offender committed the crime. The principle is this, the why and the how point us towards the who. This is season 10, episode 14, Jim Clemente delivers the profile. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Skystream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more. All in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. Skystream. TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Requires Skystream and broadband minimum speed 10 megabits per second. 18 month minimum term. Cut off times apply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday. 18 plus terms apply. Let me give you an example of an indicator that might be theorized from a profile. So if an offender spends a lot of time with a body after a murder to try to conceal it, like if someone takes a body out to the woods and buries it. That behavior is an indicator that the offender had a known personal relationship with the victim. If no one knew that they had any connection to the victim, and no one expected them to be together, then they would never be suspected if they simply just ran away. But the decision to risk spending more time with the body tells us that there is a high probability that the offender knew the victim, and if the body was found, 
they would certainly and immediately be a suspect. Now note that I said probability, not certainty. There are always exceptions to every rule. Serial killer Israel Keys defies this probability. He killed at random and did such a good job of concealing the bodies that most of his victims, sadly, to this day, have still never been found. In his case, the reason for this lies in his M.O. He was cold, calculating, and soulless in my opinion. He was in it for the long run, and he was meticulous. His long-term plan was to kill in a way where no one knew the murders even occurred, which would allow him to continue killing. He did this by choosing his victims at random in places like remote hiking trails. He would rape and kill his victims and then spend a great deal of time concealing the bodies so that the victim's loved ones might assume that they just got lost or drowned or were eaten by a bear or a mountain lion. If one of his victim's bodies was discovered, the profile would likely point to someone in their inner circle because of the reasons that I just mentioned. But that profile would be wrong. I tell you that only to caution you not to jump to conclusions. A profile is an investigative tool. It's an insight. It gives us a direction where we should be looking for suspects. Just because in the example I just presented, the profile might suggest an offender with a known personal relationship to the victim, that doesn't mean that you go out and arrest their spouse. It means that the spouse should be investigated. And if the evidence tells you that they didn't do it, then they should be cleared. There is no profiler in the world that will tell you that their profiles are infallible. Again, they are just an investigative tool. Now that being said, Keys was an exception to the rule. And to be honest, most weird exceptions like this come from serial offenders. Their strange MOs and signatures, and just the way their brains work, makes it difficult sometimes to predict their behavior. But most run-of-the-mill violent criminals are far more predictable than they'd like to admit. Today, I'm joined by retired FBI profiler Jim Clementi. You longtime listeners know that I've been working with Jim for over five years now. He has consulted on many cases that I've covered on the podcast, on my TV series, and many others that I've never spoken about publicly. He has been the driving force for me to learn more and more about how to properly investigate a case. Now, what you're about to hear is not a polished, edited, made-for-podcast interview. What I've done here is hit the record button for you to listen in on our consulting session. I've had many, many conversations just like this one with Jim over the years. So without any further ado, you're about to be a fly on the wall as I consult with my mentor. All right, so Jim, you've had a you've had some time to look over the case materials, and I'm I'm super excited to get an expert opinion on what you make of this. So I've gone real deep into the weeds and the suspects and all that, but for listeners to know, I haven't shared any of that with Jim. So I've so I've given him as much information as I possibly can about the crime scene itself and victimology without giving him any clues into who might have been arrested or who might have been suspects. So Jim, I'll let you take it away. If you, I don't know if you, usually you have some questions for me before we get get rolling in, but however you want to do it. 
Yeah, I mean, first, I'm just going to go over the crime scene that I saw with the crime scene video and the crime scene photographs you sent me. And then I'll probably be asking you a few victimology questions. And then we can talk a little bit about the autopsy. And then we'll go into my questions and my thoughts on the subject. So the first thing with the screen door, as I see from the crime scene video, you see the screen door and it's bent either outward or inward at the locking place. In other words, somebody, it looks like to me, either kicked out or kicked in that screen door. It's like a a, a tremendous amount of force was used right at that point and the door was then, you know, either kicked out or kicked in as a result of that. It was then, you know, knocked back onto the, the patio and that's where it was left. There are some interesting situations, like there's this front door was side by side, which means there's apartment that is sort of a mirror image of it, probably right next door, which means probably a lot of sound transfer between the places. It's probably, you know, it means that there were potentially ear witnesses at the very least here. One of the things that was very evident, I'll go get to the body last, but one of the things that was very evident was the fact that there were a number of figurines and other decorative things that were very fragile, and they were all sort of, you know, almost all completely undisturbed. So to me, that means there wasn't a tremendous amount of interaction between whoever killed her and the victim. The two purses on the kitchen table, I understand that her wallet was missing and a set of keys, and that was it. What else was in those purses? Well, it's one frustrating part about this, as with most cases that I'm working, is we end up in this position because the detectives didn't do a fabulous job. Those pictures of the purses are all we have. The crime scene investigator, when he, in his report, uh, just mentions that they were there in his testimony. He never says that he opened ins- opened them or looked inside. And we get the implication from the testimony of the lead detective that was in there with him that he looked inside, but he never says as much. So all, all we know is, uh, sounds like there was a checkbook that was found inside. We got the, an indication of that. And then he determined that the wallet was, well, he didn't know it was a wallet, the detective, but he knew something was missing because her ID was, wasn't was found and there were several credit card statements like laying out on the table, but there were no credit cards. Mm. Okay. And so we go further into the kitchen and have that drawer and I saw, you know, a big knife uh, that seemed to be wedged into the drawer. and. Uh, you have that apron sort of bunched up on top and a piece of plastic. And then you said it had red paint spatter on it. To me, that's potentially something that the killer brought with them, you know, as a forensic countermeasure, a very, you know, crude way to keep their fingerprints off things or something like that. Just potentially. So we'll just sort of put that to the side. Just a quick aside there. Since I sent you the case materials in reading through testimony, it turns out the assumption that was made by by lawyers and things along the case was that 
that was not blood. It was initially thought it was blood. In the lead detective's testimony, he says that after he collected it because he thought it was blood, he later never sent it to the lab for DNA testing because he assumed it's probably paint. But they're actually, as we know now, that could have been blood. We don't know. Okay. Well, all right. Well, that's unfortunate. Probably paint. Okay. Don't send it and check it out. That's a good idea. It's funny, funny story about that in the transcripts. When that was discussed on the stand, one of the, it's noted in the transcript that one of the jurors said, uh, shouted out Jesus when they heard him say that he didn't send anything for testing. Mm. <laughs> because they've been watching CSI. Right. <laughs> Kitchen cabinet was open. That could be an artifact from the, what the victim was doing before this happened, or could be somebody searching. The blanket, you know, that the apartment manager but there was a little bit of a distraction at first. I thought it might be some attempted undoing or attempt to move the body, but clearly it was just the manager. So then we have the planter and the stand that were blocking the doorway. That, to me, seems like a very flimsy and unsophisticated attempt at you know, preventing discovery of the body. They then also all four locking mechanisms were engaged. That could be that that was another uh, attempt at preventing the discovery of the body. So it's an attempt at temporary concealment. Oh, so you think rather than being used like a weapon that they put it behind the door to keep the door from opening? Well, that it blocked the manager's ability to come in he had to move it so that he could open the door so that's it just seems like it could be that judy was boring hello then judy discovered chumbacasino.com it's my little escape now judy's the life of the party oh baby mama's bringing home the bacon whoa take it easy judy The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The broken planter or vase, whatever it was, does seem to be one of the weapons used. And that's something that I want to get to because we should discuss this later, but there were at least three weapons used. So I think that's a significant factor. Okay. It appears to me that just looking at the crime scene video and the crime scene photos that I've seen, that the victim was struck on the head, probably in the vicinity of the front door, and that the pieces fell and she fell on top of them and bled on top of them. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do agree with that. Okay. Which is 
which is interesting. Do you have any indication of whether she was found on her back, like in the pictures, or was she rolled over? She was on her left side, kind of in the fetal position, facing the door. Okay. So her her left arm that's pointed towards the door, I believe that's kind of still in place because of the dirt. It looks like that's where her arm was, but she was rolled over onto it. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's what it seemed to me like was pr- pretty likely because of, you know, the blood pattern, the bleed pattern. So, you know, this is a relatively low-risk victim in the safety of her own home. It is a very, you know, probably mixed neighborhood with, you know, a number of different types of families and, and so forth and people living in this complex. And I believe she was fairly secure in this place. The fact that she had four locking mechanisms, two deadbolt types, a chain, and uh, a doorknob lock tells me that that she or somebody before her or the management company was fairly security conscious. And typically that's because there are issues. You know, it, it just in regard to the locks, because I, I used to work in apartment maintenance back in the day, the second deadbolt, the purpose behind that is to keep the apartment staff from entering when you're home because they have master keys. So a lot of apartments will have that where they'll have a second deadbolt that's keyless so that if you're in the apartment, you can lock the door and the maintenance man won't walk in on you. Got it. Okay. But the fact that they have a deadbolt, a chain bolt, and a door lock in and of itself, you know, is that they were security conscious. In other words, it's not like they weren't thinking about it. But, you know, they're security conscious probably for, you know, for a reason, you know. So it's not a completely crime-free neighborhood. It's probably just a normal average, you know, risk of break-ins and burglaries. It doesn't seem like, for example, that like the door had been kicked in before or anything like that. Right. So I would have to rate her as a low-risk victim. And in the lowest risk environment she could possibly be in, which is her home. And because of that, this is a very high-risk crime. And the proximity to other dwellings, proximity to other witnesses and potential witnesses, those things indicate that the offender took a huge risk committing this crime, particularly at nine in the morning when the amount of activity that you would expect in the area would be at its highest. You know, it would be, people would be out and about, and it's not the smartest thing to do when you're an offender. So, you know, they had to have a certain level of luck in not being seen, and or they had a very available, readily available way to hide almost immediately. So those are the things that I see just off the top. Okay. All right? Yep. So there are three glasses on the floor in the living room. None of them broken, but it's a carpet. So that could be what she was getting out of or about to put in the cabinet when this whole thing started. 
or it could be that they were knocked off the counter or something like that. I don't know. But I have a feeling that it had some relationship to, you know, what she might have been doing. She might have been cleaning her dishes or putting them away or something at the time that this all started at 9 a.m. Do we have any idea when she generally got up, when she generally went to bed, when she generally ate? The only thing that we know about her habits is she had a habit of calling her nephew and talking on the phone every morning at 8 a.m. And on this day, she did call and talk to him at at 8 o'clock in the morning. So as far as when she got up, that's hard to say. When she ate, also hard to say. We did see in in the folder of the crime scene photos, not in the summary I sent you, that she did have some open... Like it looked like vitamins and some kind of pills open on the counter in the kitchen. Yeah. So it looks like maybe she was in some sort of morning routine where she was, you know, taking her morning meds, doing dishes, something, you know, maybe both. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So let's talk about the autopsy a little bit. You know, so she was beaten over the head. Does the autopsy go into any more detail about that number of wounds, death, anything like that? Is it possible that the quote being beaten over the head was this sort of phase, ceramic type phase being smashed over her head and that's it? Uh, it's possible. It doesn't, it, the autopsy doesn't get into a lot of detail about anything. You know, you've worked another stabbing case with me before where multiple stab wounds were every single injury was, you know, which side of the cut was beveled and which was straight and how wide was it and how deep was it we don't get that kind of detail in here uh i'm trying to look at the i got in front of me right now what it says about the blunt just as blunt force trauma multiple injuries scalp was reflected via the usual by mastoid incision Uh, this is what she did um description of injuries okay here we go so here's the description of injuries to the head The right aspect of the head in the parietal and temporal regions were remarkable for full thickness lacerations clustered together associated with the red swelling or with red swelling, which range in measurements from an eighth inch to a half inch in length. The edges of the of the wounds were abraded and the skull was palpable, palpable through the defect. There were no palpable skull fractures. The facial skin was remarkable. For numerous lacerations, number one occurred at four inches below the vertex on the right aspect of the forehead, just below the scalp hairline. The defect was curvilinear and measured one inch in length. The edges were abraded. There was tissue bridging between the wound's edge and the skull was palpable beneath and through the defect. The second laceration occurred on the medial surface of the right eyebrow at four and three quarters inches below the vertex of the head. The defect measured uh, one inch in length and was horizontally situated and was full thickness with palpable facial bone through the defect. I don't know if you want me to keep going through this. There's a whole list of injuries described like that on her head, her face, uh, laceration beneath the right eye, no bony fractures. So, I mean, it looks to me like, like it was that vase or that ceramic pot, whatever it was. Uh, was likely the cause of a lot of this because we have a whole bunch of not only blunt force, we've got you know tissue bridging on all of these lacerations with bruising, but no skull fracture, which to me, you know, the fact that the thing broke 
it gave, you know, if, if you hit somebody with a beer mug and it doesn't break, it actually do more damage than if it does break. So it, it seems to me that, that that's the case, that at least some of these injuries came from that ceramic pot or ceramic whatever that was. Yeah, it seemed like that. And I think the curvilinear ones could be that the pieces are on the ground and she falls onto them. That's a real possibility, especially since that appears to be where she ended up and where she did a lot of her bleeding. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Right. Yeah. And you, one thing that's interesting, I was going to circle back when you mentioned the, we were talking about her body position and where her arm is located. If you look at the picture on page five of the summary, the top picture, I hadn't really noticed this before, but it looks like the dirt from the planter got scattered out there after she was already in the fetal position. Because if you look over her left shoulder is the position where her head was when she was found. And you can see the dirt, the dirt pattern goes around that as though her head was already there when the, when the dirt ended up there. I see what you're saying, but I don't know for sure if that was sort of like blood spatter shadow, you know? Right. Is that because of when she was hit with it, she was up, but that, you know, that area was protected? Or was she smashed while she was down? In other words, was there some other precursor blood fork trauma, and then this thing was smashed on her head afterwards? It's very possible, but these pieces appear to be, they have been bled on, so either she then rolled over into the fetal position to protect herself or she fell on these pieces that were already there. Well, and I, I agree with you hundred percent about the, about the white ceramic. I'm not so sure any of that dirt came out of that white ceramic. There's another, I don't think in, in here, but in the folder I sent, there's a, there's a fake plant that's sitting on the ground, by, right behind the nightstand, right by kind of about where her knees would have been. And you know that that green kind of foamy stuff you stick fake plants into? There's one of those there, which makes me think that maybe the dirt all came out of the orange pot and that the the white pot didn't act. Because you see the pieces that are away from where the dirt is spilled up in the, like, uh, above her right shoulder. There doesn't seem to be any dirt residue on those. So what, kind of what I was getting at is if they used the orange pot and or stand as a weapon, like they hit her with it after she was already down. And that's how the dirt, because even if they use it to block the doorway, I don't see why, they, unless they just in a hurry spilled it, but how that dirt got spilled everywhere. I believe that it was in, in the pot that they hit her over the head with. It's just how many things did she get over the head with? We know this broken one seems like a real possibility. Right. Because it's not like it was smashed against the wall, right? Right. It seems to have been smashed on her. And the, the different, you know, wounds that we see on her tell me that it is at least one of the weapons that was used. 
against her. Were there more? Yes. There are cuts on her hands and arms, defensive wounds, and then all the stab wounds. The fact that there are two different sized knives used, I mean... Are, are you... Sh- how did you come to the conclusion, or did I misconstrue that to you, that there was two different sized knives used? Well, the wider ones are the shallow ones, and the narrower ones are the deep ones. You can't have a wide knife that makes a deep cut that's shallow. That's why. So my, my theory on that, and it, it could, could be wrong, is one small knife in the cuts on the chest. Cause I, when I say shallow, I mean like half inch, quarter inch. They're more cuts than they are stabs. My thought was they're using the small knife to try to stab her in the chest. And while she's obtaining these defensive wounds, the knife is, you know, it's not going straight in. It's slicing across her skin. All right. Well, that's different. Yeah. If that's a, well, that's a different thing. Yeah. I thought they were stab wounds. She described them as stab wounds, but in most ME reports that I've read, usually, you know, the, they call it a cut if it's wider than it is deep and a stab if it's deeper than it is wide. She called them stab wounds, but they, like I said, they, they just barely, they're superficial. They're only, they only barely cut the skin. And so the only real measurement of the knife we get is on her back where there's, there's stab wounds that go, that she describes as deeply penetrating. They go in all the way through her lung and into her liver. And the cut on the skin is only five eighths of an inch. To me, that that's the maximum width our knife could be if it's one knife. And then those front ones look more like they were cut when someone was trying to stab. Regardless of what size of knife it was, for those big gashes in the front, it didn't. they didn't penetrate. So it's hard to tell to get any kind of gauge on the size of that weapon. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, when I look at these wounds on her chest, a couple of them do look like they could be. I mean, they're almost in a complete linear fashion, right? Mm-hmm, right. But I don't understand the interrupted nature of them if that was just one big slash. And why would you go back to the same area and do a linear slash next to it and next to it and next to it and next to it? It's kind of weird, right? Yeah, I, uh, your guess is as good as mine. The, but the only hypothesis I had on that is with them trying to stab and she's pushing the knife, they're trying to continue to plunge it in and there's kind of a give and take where she's winning for a second, they're winning for a second, and it just kind of, because all the, like you said, they're linear, they're all right in the same area. But if you look at that picture at the top of page five, there's, you can see one of the puncture wounds in her left breast, at the lower edge of her, of her left breast. And that was, that one actually punctured. And you can see how narrow that is compared to the other ones. Right. Okay. Well, that said, I think that it is possible that somebody was, you know, slashing and the movement of the victim with respect to, you know, relationship to that knife caused this sort of staccato pattern and that, that it wasn't two knives then. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I, I don't see evidence that there's two knives, but it just, it looks like it when you look at the photos. And I actually thought that too, I thought it was a very large knife too when I first started looking at it until I realized that those, those didn't even break into the, into the chest cavity at all. Yeah, I didn't realize that they were cut and not penetrating wounds. So that's a different situation altogether. So 
looking at that at this point, you know, at what we see, that I would have to say that this is a very disorganized offender, that this is not someone who is fantasizing about going out and killing, planning extensively, or doing anything really other than sort of reacting to some stimulus and making a decision to do this very quickly and haphazardly. It's an inefficient murder. It's not showing any kinds of indication of skill or experience in committing a homicide, just the intent to do so. Even though the victim does have defensive wounds, I believe the victim was at least temporarily incapacitated, at least partially incapacitated after that, and attempted to fight off her attacker, probably from the position on the ground. The offender may have incapacitated her with the broken base and broke it in the process, or may have hit her with another blunt force object first, and then the vase came later. I'm not sure. That planter stand may have been a weapon as well, and so I'm back to at least three different weapons in this crime, the knife, the vase, and the planter, you know, the metal planter. It does appear that that planter came from the back patio, and it does appear that I'll agree with you that the more likely scenario is that the victim was on the ground when she was struck with whatever planter had that dirt in it because of the shadow pattern of the dirt on the carpet, the places that were protected from that dirt spatter. It's possible that the offender had the knife with them. It's also possible that the knife that was jammed in the door in the kitchen, that may have been an attempt by the victim to protect herself, to get a weapon, once she realized that there was danger. If the offender simply hopped that little four-foot fence in the back and then kicked in the back screen door, because the sliding glass door was already open, then the victim, who may have been getting a glass or putting away glasses, may have dropped those, tried to get a knife, and was attacked in the process, or decided to try to run to the front door, and was then hit over the head with a blunt force object at that point, incapacitated at least temporarily, at which point, uh, she was then engaged in trying to protect herself from the stabbing and the slicing that was going on. It's possible that the, the slice pattern across the upper chest is indicative of the victim being sliced from behind across the chest and moving around in that process or bunched up in that process, and that's why you have this sort of staccato pattern, this dotted line pattern, because she was trying to make that area as small as possible, and there are some overlaps, so the cut skips places. 
because they're they're remarkably in the same linear pattern, the same line. So at that point, uh, at some point where the victim is on the ground, probably on her left side, she's then stabbed fatally under the armpit and, and through through the back there. That seems to be how it went down. And the offender, you know, either left that that stand in the pottery in the way to further block the front door, or it was just left there as a result, discarded there after it was used to attack the woman. I have a very strong feeling that this is not a random act of violence, that this is a very targeted attack, that the wallet and keys might have been taken afterwards to try to cover up the reason for this attack. That is a aspect of staging. And as we've discussed before, people who stage crime scenes, who take the time to do that, typically do it because there is a known relationship between the offender and the victim. And they want to disguise that and make it look like something else so that nobody looks at the people who are associated with this victim. So I would look for somebody who was very close by, who had a strong grievance with this victim, who had a history of blowing up, of overreacting to stimulus, of bouts of rage and anger, threatening other people, and someone who uh, was able to hide themselves very quickly after leaving this particular apartment where this crime occurred. It's possible that the choice of time is, although a time where there's typically a tremendous amount of activity around businesses and so forth, it may have been a lull because everybody who's working is already at the office at nine and everybody who, you know, everybody else is probably, you know, in their house. It's not like it's midday and people might be going out to lunch or, you know, late morning when people might be, you know, out tending their gardens or, or something like that. So this could actually, this 9 a.m. crime time could actually indicate that somebody who was thinking about doing something very quickly, could have thought this is a good time to do it, and then acted very impulsively using things that were available, not being very sophisticated in terms of, you know, kicking in a screen door is going to make a lot of noise, smashing something on somebody, you know, right on the other side of, of a drywall connecting to apartments. Uh, you know, that would have alerted anybody who's in the apartment next door and could have really interfered with this crime. I think this happened very quickly. I think this happened as a result of a some kind of personal conflict between the victim and the offender. And there are very few indicators here of Age, I would say that this person could be 
anywhere between their 20s and, you know, 20s and 30s. I think they, they, the gender is unknown. Although I think, I mean, just my, my first impression is that a male would not likely pick up a flowered plant potter and use it as a way to incapacitate a 70 year old, 71 year old woman. A male would likely use his own physical strength and manually control the victim versus a female who might pick up a potted plant and smash it over somebody's head to incapacitate them. Do you think there's any, any indicators here that there might be more than one offender? Well, that's what I was saying earlier. The fact that there are multiple weapons used is an indicator of multiple offenders. I certainly thought when there were two different knives, that was a very high probability. But if it's just one knife and the planter and the vase, it could be one person. But certainly, when you have more than one weapon utilized in a murder, there is, you know, a higher probability that you're dealing with multiple offenders. But clearly, when I say multiple offenders here, I'm talking about people who are acting very impulsively, probably very emotionally, and not some organized gang effort or some planned out organized crime. Yeah, that that makes perfect sense. I have to say that this, I think, the offender or offenders seized an opportunity very quickly. This was all planned, executed, and escaped from in a matter of a couple of minutes. This was not something that had been planned over time or, you know, was really well thought out at all. Do you see any indicators that this was a robbery gone wrong, or would you consider this a personal cause homicide? No, definitely go for personal cause homicide because the indicators of the burglary are very shallow. And the fact that there's, you know, there's all sorts of different trinkets and and all that kind of stuff tells me nobody, nobody spent time searching this place. The timing of it being at 9 a.m. and the, the proximity to all the other units, it just tells me that this is not the time you would be doing a, you know, break in to actually search for, you know, valuables. It just doesn't seem like that to me. There's just no indication that anywhere else in the apartment was searched. Yeah, it doesn't. And I don't know if you noticed, but and I didn't notice till just recently, but Catalina, the victim, is actually wearing a gold necklace that's still on her neck. That, mm. you know, they didn't, they didn't even grab yeah. that. I was wondering what that was, but now you've answered that. Yeah, you know, obviously she didn't have a wedding ring, but if the person or persons who did this didn't know her, then how would they know that she didn't have a stash of money under her mattress, you know, a lockbox in her closet or in her dresser, all these kinds of things? You would look for that, and you would spend the time to do it because you've taken such a high risk to commit this crime you would want the reward. And if the reward was actually to get money or valuable, then they would have spent time doing that. 
But if the reward was just to kill her, that is what they spent their time to do. And then they left. Do you think the fact that the the keys that included her car keys could play into a robbery at all? Or you think that's just part of the staging of it? Well, if you told me that that her car was missing and it was a valuable car, then I'd say that's a possibility. But I didn't hear that in this crime. No, she had a Honda Accord that was parked right outside the apartment that was still there. Right. Well, then there's your answer. Do you have more with with your profile, or, or can I get into asking you some uh, some questions about some suspects? That's all I have, so tell me what other circumstances there are here. That's next week on Truth and Justice. Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at Bob Ruff Truth, and Mike can be found at Murb Gaming. M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.